So tonight we're going to be in the letter of 1 John. So every single Wednesday night we started in the book of Genesis and every single Wednesday night we're looking at a different book of the Bible. So we started in Genesis and we're working our way all the way through John. So this is the 23rd book in the New Testament. How many books are in the New Testament total? 27. So we're getting close to the end. Um, if you peek over at 2nd John and 3rd John, you'll notice that they are brief. That doesn't mean that our time in here will be brief. It just means that we'll probably um, tackle both 2nd John and 3rd John at one time um, next Wednesday night, Lord willing. So, um, But we have just been walking through the ideas to think about who wrote it, who they write it to, when was it written, what's it about, maybe some, some highlights that we can look at um, that kind of give us an idea of why this book is in the Bible and why it still matters to us. Or sometimes you get in the Bible and you will be in places and you'll think, well, I don't know what this has to do with me. I don't understand how it is uh, meaningful to my life. And as I have tried to explain and tried to show, every book in the Bible has relevancy to our lives today. Every book in the Bible not only shows us God's uh, shows us about God, but God also reveals Himself to us through the pages of Scripture, as well as through the pages of Scripture we see more about who we are and what kind of people we are and why we need a Savior. So that's what we've been doing. So here you are towards the uh, like if you look at my Bible, of course this is the part we've already been through, and this is the part we still have left to do. So towards the end of the New Testament, um, after First and Second Peter, then you'll find 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and then Revelation. So we are in 1st John this evening. Kind of to kind of to uh, maybe try to set this up where we're at. <clears throat> I've spent a lot of my life in a classroom. Um, doing the grade school, middle school, high school, and then doing the uh, four-year college, and then doing the uh, graduate level, and now still in the classroom today. And one of the things I can't stand when you get in the classroom is they decide to take a test. And they especially did this in the language schools there in the graduate um, the graduate level classes I was in. And so we would sit there, and let's say we all take a take a test, and it's a grammar test, and so it's Greek language, and so you're having to do Greek vocabulary words, or you're having to look at a Greek word and tell you whether it is masculine or feminine, or whether it's singular or whether it's plural, or whether it's present, past, or future tense, and all these things, and so you take this test, and then the professor most genuinely would say, now, hand the test two people to your right, or hand the test two people to your left, or he would sit there and say, make sure your name's on the top of your list, we'll go over the answers, and you grade your own test and then turn them all in. And I always thought to myself, what is your job as the teacher if you're not supposed to be grading the, grading the papers? And it also caused you to say, well, I wonder if I could, you know, give myself a little bit of grace in this situation or that situation. I wonder if he even looks at them. And, and I always didn't like it whenever they'd say, hand them to the next person because let's say I got to hand my paper to Matt and then as Matt is grading my paper, he realizes just how ignorant I am when it comes to the language. And so I, I never liked that portion of always having that check or that accountability. When we get to the letter of 1 John, how many chapters in 1 John? 
5. Five chapters in 1 John. And the whole content, and we'll get to a little bit more of the background, but the, the main thrust that I, want to, that I want you to hear from me out of 1 John is John is saying, this is how you evaluate whether you are living a faithful Christian life. So he, he gives all this explanation of what it means to live a faithful Christian life as if to say, now you can self-evaluate you. And sometimes I like to give myself a lot more credit than I deserve. And sometimes I like to overlook the things, the faults, the failures that I have. And you get to 1 John and there's some language in 1 John that you or I may read. And we're like, he can't be serious. And John is saying, no, this is what it means to be a faithful Christian. And this is what it looks like to be an obedient Christian. And either you're doing it or you're not. One of the things that I most love and most struggle with when it comes to like Jaylene and I is I'm a very black and white person. It's A or B. She has a lot more gray in her life. And so sometimes we'll look at it and it'll be that that balance, if you will, between the black and white and the gray. You get to first John and first John just says there is no gray. Either you're obedient or you're not. Either you're faithful or you're not. Either you're doing what God has commanded you to do or you're not. Not a lot of gray that is there. So when you get to letter first John, who wrote it? John. Who was John? Apostle. Apostle? What else do we know about John? Favored one. He was a favored one, yeah. So he writes about in the Gospel of John. He's the one that Jesus loved. That's okay, according to him. According to him, right? And sometimes we like to give ourselves some grace, right? All right. So have have you ever read anything or heard anybody talk about when you come to the age of the disciples? Where do they think John fit in age wise? A lot of people think he was probably the youngest. A lot of people probably think that he was maybe even in his teenage years when he and his brother um, decided or was called by Jesus to follow Jesus. And so they think he was very, very young. If you, uh, we know through church history, out of the 12 that Jesus called, Judas hung himself. Okay, That happened the night that Jesus was being examined. Um, the night before he was crucified, the next day he hung himself. So that left 11 of the original 12. Of the original 11, how many were martyred? What I mean by that is killed for their faith. Ten. Ten. All right. So who is the only one that wasn't martyred? John. John. All right. So the way that church history tells us, and and I don't have a chapter and verse for this, but the way church history tells us is that out of the original 11, the other 10 were killed for their faith. John was a man that died of old age. Now, if you think back to when we were in the gospel of John, we talked about how that John not only followed Jesus, but then later in life, he pastored a church where? May I remember? In Ephesus. So, as church history tells us, most likely towards the very end of his life, John is then finding himself there in Ephesus. Now, if you remember, Timothy was also a man that pastored the church in Ephesus. And so, when you get to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you'll see language that Paul is writing, telling Timothy on how to pastor the church in Ephesus. Well, it is, it is assumed and it is written in the 
extra-biblical church history writings that later on in life, John um, pastored, spent some time, spiritual leadership at the church in Ephesus. So, a lot of these books we've been looking at, in fact, 1 Peter and 2 Peter were written in the mid-60s, most people think. Somewhere 60 AD, somewhere in that range. But they're going to date 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John too much later. In fact, they're going to date it somewhere around 90 to 95 AD. So, what this tells us is if you have the life and the ministry of Jesus, all right, most people think he was crucified about, um, he was born about 3 AD, so he was crucified about 30, 33 AD. So you're talking six years later. So if you're John, and let's say just hypothetically, you're 20 years old when Jesus calls you to follow him, and now 70 years later, you're in your 90s. So you've an elder statesman, an elder churchman, a man that has the ability to say hard things and gets a pass because of his age. There are things, and I don't think it's fair, but there are things that Ron could say to a group of people that he could get away with that I can't get away with. Because they might look at Ron and go, well, Ron's just an older guy. Oh, that's just what you do when you get to be older in your age. You just kind of get to, to, to mouth off. And yet when it comes to those younger guys, people start getting offended. Or there are things that Ron could say to some people in the church that they would say, hey, we understand that's coming from a fatherly heart. If I was to say the exact same thing, they would think I was being an insensitive jerk. And sometimes that age and sometimes that experience and sometimes just the breadth of a person's faithfulness and the breadth of a person's legacy gives them the opportunity to be able to say things that maybe 30 years ago might have come across harsh or uh, mean-spirited, but now people are saying, yeah... You know what? He has a right to say it because we've seen how he's lived, we've, he's lived his life. We've seen what he's done for the church. We've seen how much he loved Jesus. So when you get in here in 1 John and you're seeing some of these things, you may say, well, so Spence, you just need to go out and start saying the same things. Well, we need to think about where John was at in life and where he's at in ministry and what he had done and where how God had used him. So John the Apostle is writing it. You might find some, some uh, cuckoos out there that try to say, well, it wasn't John, it was someone else. Nowadays, if you find a book of the Bible that for the last 2,000 years it's been assumed or accepted that somebody wrote it, you're always going to be able to find a book out there or a blog post out there that says, no, someone else wrote it. Because just because people like to make money off of selling ink and paper. So John the Apostle, he wrote it. Um, written around 90 to 95 A.D. Now, who is he writing it to? Anybody have a guess? Gentiles. Gentiles, okay. The church. The church, that's right. So he's writing it to the church. So if we thought about 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he's writing it, and the primary audience is a geographical region. It's a set of Roman provinces, and so that's kind of the general audience. John is not writing it to a geographical region. He is not writing it to a certain city or a certain church. He is just writing like an open letter that he's just writing to the church at large, saying, hey, this is what's going on. Now, does anybody have any idea what he is, what is the motivation for his writing? Like, what, what is he, what, why would he sit down and write this letter? Well, he felt that the times were short. Okay. Okay. Was there, was there any competing, competing ideas out there? Oh, yeah, there were false, yeah, false teachings everywhere. False teachings, but there's a, there's a particular one known as Gnosticism. 
So you might, somebody's probably, some of you have heard about Gnosticism before. So as John is writing this, one of the motivations for writing is, yes, the false teachers, yes, the time is short, but also he is writing this to address the heresy that Gnosticism was teaching. Now, now the idea of a Gnostic comes from the Greek word Gnostikos, which means to have knowledge. And the Gnostics believed, or Gnosticism taught, that all material, tangible things were flawed. So anything that we see, smell, hear, touch, all of that is flawed and corrupt. So then they would take that to another step to say that we are all we are all corrupt and because we are all corrupt and we are all flawed then they would take it then to move on to say now that means that any church tradition, man tradition, any church teaching, um, all of these are all flawed and corrupt. And so then what they would do is they would say because we are a broken, fallen, sinful, flawed, corrupt world, the only thing that we can trust in is our inner knowledge. And so Gnosticism became started to take root because they started saying that, you know what, it's all about what you think and what you believe and how you feel. And they started elevating this idea that you have a some type of a supernatural, inerrant knowledge inside of you. You can't trust what you see. You can't trust what you hear. You can't trust what you've been taught. You can't trust what you can know physically, materially, because all those things are flawed. And so now we have to reward to resort to the inner knowledge inside of you. And because of that, they said that Jesus was not the Son of God. Because He couldn't be the Son of God and be man in the flesh because of all flesh is flawed. And so therefore you couldn't have a perfect man living on this earth because everything was flawed. So they questioned, they denied the deity of Christ as well as they said the resurrection didn't happen and the resurrection wasn't true. Why? Because you do not need the resurrection in order to be saved. Because how is a person saved? A person is saved by receiving the inner knowledge and having the inner knowledge and that is how a person is redeemed. And so this started to take off because now it started to be not about your obedience to God or not about your service um, to the kingdom and not about your love for others and uh, informed and, and, and uh, motivated by God. Now it's about what you think, about what you feel and what you believe. And you can say, I have knowledge in here that you don't have. And so therefore I know better. And it started to take root and it was, it was starting to build steam in the second, about the second to the fifth century. It really took off and really gained a lot of steam until you got to the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. And at this council um, was where they adopted the Nicene Creed. Some of you may have heard about that. And that is where the church at large said, we are going to deal with this heresy of Gnosticism and say it is unbiblical, it is not God-honoring, and it is not conformed with Orthodox teaching of who Christ is. And you may say, well, Spence, that, that idea of Gnosticism, that was then. No, it's still today. <clears throat> because you'll look at somebody and you'll say, you probably shouldn't do that. Well, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a man by the name of Vody Bauckham. A man grew up in South, California, South L.A. Um, now is a... a uh, college professor, college dean over in Zambia, Africa. But... 
he did a, a sermon here a while back talking about ethnic Gnosticism and how some of this stuff with uh, some of this woke ideology is coming out saying, hey, you know what? You can't tell me who I am because my, my ethnicity or my zip code or my last name or my occupation or my gender, all of these things, I know what is best for me and you have no idea what is right or wrong for me. And, that, and it's one of those things, he said, we are seeing these, this, this, these elements of Gnosticism continue to come up and to continue to be an issue where people start saying, you know what, I know what the Bible says, but that's not what I'm going to do because I know what is best for me in here. And there's a danger. There's a danger. If you want to see that on display, just come to my house. I got these little black-hearted sinners running around the house, and every single one of them think that they know what is best for them. And every single one of them thinks that they know what is right and what is wrong, and especially as they're getting older, they're looking at me and going, "Well, I disagree." Well, good. I am glad that you live in a home that you have the freedom to disagree. However, you also live in the home that you have the opportunity to comply. It's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple equation, if you will. But it's the idea that this narcissism is saying, you know what? You don't need to worry about what the Bible says. You don't need to worry about what God says. Just worry about what you believe and what you think in here. So that's what John is writing. He's writing to say this whole idea of you having the knowledge to save yourself is wrong. And you've got to check yourself and you've got to evaluate yourself if you don't find yourself in a, in a slide or in, in, a, in, in a trajectory where you start to think that your opinions, your ideas, your feelings, and your emotions trump the Word of God. And I can't say it for all of you, but I can say it for me. That is a daily struggle. And operating more off what God's Word says instead of what I think or what I feel or what I desire. So, 1 John is going to address that. Um, we're, going to, we're going to run through this letter of 1 John. We're going to stop at all five chapters, just one or two places in each chapter. And I want to show you where John says, here are some tests that you can evaluate yourself by to see if you are living a faithful Christian life or if you're living by your own ideas, your own opinions, and demonstrating some of that Gnostic attitude. So, chapter 1, verse 5. First place we're going to look at. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is what John writes. He says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim it to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. He said, Here is where it just becomes very simple. Either you're walking in darkness or you're walking in light. Now the idea of light is a metaphor talking about faith, talking about obedience, talking about kingdom pursuits. He's saying that is light. And if you are living a sinful life, a rebellious life, a stubborn life, a backslidden life, a life that is not seeking to bring honor and glory to God, you're walking in darkness. And if you're walking in darkness, don't say you're walking in light. Either you're in darkness or you're in light. 
It's one way or the other. It's you're pursuing light or you're pursuing darkness. It's one way or the other. Now, where does the light come from? The light does not come from my things, my feelings, my thoughts, or my emotions. Where does the light come from? Well, the light comes from God. That's what he says in verse 5. God is light. So if I'm going to walk in the light, I have to be walking in the ways and the word and the will of God. If I'm not walking in the way, the word, and the will of God, I'm not walking in light. And I realize all of these are going to be a little bit simple, a little elementary. But these are big questions and they have wide range of application and follow-up thinking about, okay, so am I walking according to God's Word, according to His will? Am I following after Him? Because God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So you have these Gnostics that were sitting there saying, you don't need to worry about God says, you have your own knowledge, you have your own light, you have your own ability. And John says, no! You don't create your own light. You simply reflect light. Or the only light that comes out of you is a light from God. So he says the source of light. But then, verse 8, if we say we have sin, or so I'm sorry, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. If we say we have not sin, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Years ago, I was working with a, a friend, um, a co-worker, and he was a Pentecostal. And I'm not saying that all Pentecostals believe this, but I'm saying that particular stripe of Pentecostal believe this. And having a discussion, he informed me that because he is saved and because he is filled with the Spirit, he no longer sins. And I said, so you mean... From the time you got saved, from the time the Holy Spirit got inside of you, you stopped sinning. He said, yes. I said, so you, don't, you're, you haven't sinned today? No. And you're not going to sin today? No. And you can tell me you're not going to sin tomorrow? Yes. So you're telling me because you're saved, you do not sin? Correct. I said, well, you're a liar, and that's a sin. And so therefore, I hate to break it to you, but you have sin. And so that is where the Gnostics were coming in, going, well, as long as you have the knowledge, you don't need to worry about where you stand in judgment before God. And John says, no! Everyone has sinned. If you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. He says, do you understand what this comes down to is not how smart you are or how much you know or how much things you have in here. The problem is, as Romans 3 says, we've all sinned and we need a Savior. So it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much Bible you have. One of you in this room could have the entire Bible memorized and still go to hell. One of us in this room could attend church every single time the doors are open for our entire life and we can still go to hell. One of us could have read all the books there is to read about the Bible and about Jesus and we can still go to hell. One of us in this room could have the entire hymnal memorized. All five, six, seven, eight editions of the Baptist hymnal and we can still go to hell. It's not a matter of the knowledge. It's a matter of the heart. So John says, look at the first test. Are you in the light or are you in the darkness? Has your sin been addressed on the cross? Or do you think your knowledge is going to save you from your sin? The second one. 
John chapter or first John chapter two. Chapter two and look at verse twenty-two. <clears throat> the first test was about the source of light, guilt of our sin. The second test he gives us has to do with understanding the deceitful spirits. Verse twenty-two, we pick it up in the middle of the paragraph. So if, if you don't if you don't if you think I'm just cherry picking, I invite you to go all the way back and look at the entire paragraph or the entire chapter. I'm not trying to take anything out just for the sake of time. It says in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, just a little clarification. Sometimes we look at that and go, is that the Antichrist of Revelation? Sometimes you'll see the Antichrist in lowercase a. Sometimes you'll see the Antichrist in uppercase a. It's a a proper description when you get to Revelation talking about that one figure. Here in 1 John, he's talking about that anybody that is opposed, anybody that is rebellious towards Jesus, they would be categorized as an Antichrist. Not the official figure of Antichrist, but anybody that denies Jesus is Antichrist. And what is the test that he gives you? He, this is verse 22, he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So what John makes it very clear is, do you understand that anybody that denies that Jesus is the Christ is an antichrist? And why should we want to have anything to do with those who are opposed to Christ? I don't know if he still is, but at one time... Joe Rogan was the number one podcaster. Some of you may say, well, who cares? Who cares? Millions and millions of people cared. And companies cared that people listened to Joe Rogan. And so he has made millions and millions of dollars because millions and millions of people have listened to him. And he does these long-form interviews, three, four, five-hour-long interviews with people. Joe Rogan has very plainly said that he is not a believer. And he thinks it's butkus. And he has had people on that will not necessarily attack, but they will deny who Jesus is. You may say, well, Spence, I like listening to Joe Rogan. I'm not saying that Joe Rogan is a bad person. Joe Rogan needs Jesus. But what I do want to caution us is do want to caution us for is that when we put ourselves in a position that we're spending all that time listening to one guy, what kind of influence and what kind of effect is that having on us? What, what kind of impact does that have on us? He says it there, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He said, be on guard because there are a lot of people around you that deny. And how do you know the Antichrist? How do you know the people that you should guard yourself and stay away from are the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Those that deny that Jesus is the only way. And there is a wide variety of people on television, on movies, on the radio, on your screen that are known to be Christ deniers. And he says, do you understand how serious that is? The people you listen to and the people you allow to influence in your life. They're antichrist. They'll stand before God and give judgment. And we need to be on guard for the influence those antichrist can have in our lives. We need to be careful. More than once, I've had 
sweet people in the church come up and say, well, have you read this particular book? <coughs> the Vinci Code. Have you watched that movie? Have you read that book? Have you done this? Have you done that? And many times I look at them and go, well, no. Well, you need to. Why? So I have more questions. I mean, I, I've watched the Da Vinci Code. Please don't think that I'm off in a hole someplace. But what I'm saying is, is that so many times, so many times we will go to those unbiblical sources and then base our understanding of God's word off of those unbiblical sources. And we get the order out of whack. Instead of comparing those movies to God's word, we compare God's word to those movies. Why? Because we spend more time with those movies and those books than we do with God's Word. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful of the influence. Now, I'm not saying don't, don't watch National Treasure. I'm not saying don't read Dan Brown. I'm, I'm, not saying don't, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying be careful that you don't interpret Scripture based upon that movie when you should interpret the movie based upon the scripture. My children get upset at me because we will watch something on television and I will stop it and I will say, that's wrong and let me tell you why it's wrong. And they're like, no, dad, we just, just let us watch it. You're just ruining it. No, because what you're going to do is you're going to accept that as being true and then you're going to come to God's word and say, oh, well then God's word can't be true because that TV show said... got to be thinking. And it's a test. It's a test that John gives us. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 4. Now it gets closer to my toes. My toes. Maybe they won't touch your toes. I hope they won't touch your toes. But now it gets a whole lot closer to my toes and even my shin bones. Chapter 3, verse 4. Remember, black and white. We want to do some word gymnastics here to give ourselves a pass. John doesn't give us this leeway. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay? Alright? I understand. Sin is lawless. Alright, I'm with you, John. Verse 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. I'm with you, John. Alright. Sin is lawlessness. Christ came. No sin was in Christ. He died so that my sin could be forgiven. Verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from God from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, i tell you where this touches my toes and my shin bones at. Talked a little bit last week about this idea of sin a choice. This is where I get it from. Sin is a choice. So what does this mean? Does that mean that Spence, because you have sinned, or because you do sin, that means that you're not a child of God? Notice how he qualifies it. In verse 7, he says, Whoever practices righteousness, he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. Then verse 9, makes a practice of 
sinning. Then you get down to verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness of God, not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What is John saying? He is saying, if there is a pattern of your life, a sinful pattern, a sinful habit of your life, that, that is not a mark of a true Christian. I, I, I've had the opportunity to speak to men that profess to be Christians that struggle with an addiction, a behavior, or an attitude. And they'll look at me and they'll say, well, I just can't help it. No, you can't help it. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross, because you couldn't help it. If you could fix it on your own, then Jesus would need to come and save you. But the fact that you are now in Christ means that you are no longer held by that bondage and by that habit and you are no longer bound to that practice of sinning. Will we sin? Yes. But do I have an excuse card to say, well, I am not strong enough. I am not able. I can't help it. No, 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 no. Why? John says... You can't say you are of God and you are in Christ while you are practicing sin over and over and over. And yet, just yesterday, just yesterday, I go for five miles behind this oil field pulling unit. Five miles. He had plenty of room to move over and let me and the other 5,000 cars pass him. And I know the driver, and he's about three light bulbs short of a full four pack of bulbs. I don't know how he has a license. I don't know how he has kept a license. This guy, this guy got on the on-ramp to the turnpike here in Wellston, got the on, on the on-ramp like he's going to head towards Chandler and Tulsa, Gets on the turnpike, gets right there by Don Chester's, says, Huh, I thought this was 177. I don't need to be here. So he decides to back up, turn around, and come back the opposite direction on the on ramp to get back on 66. But when he backed up on the turnpike, he got his rear wheels off in the grass and he got stuck. Part of his derrick was stretched out over one lane of the traffic on the turnpike. Five state troopers, they had to redirect traffic, had to bring out a big heavy wrecker, big heavy wrecker from LDs to pull him out. Record, the, the highway patrolman shows up and says, what are you doing? He said, I thought this was 177. Well, it ain't. Well, I was going to turn around and get back off. This is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Because <laughs> I don't want you thinking I'm quick to judge and I'm just being a hard hard person. I'm just telling you. I've got examples. So this clown, you know. Lady special. This man created in the image of God. I mean, he's got me held up back there. And I'm back there and I'm like, I don't want to do 35 up a hill. I have been provided a vehicle from my employer that will do more than 35 up a hill. The state of Oklahoma allows me to do 65 up the hill legally. I would like to do 65. My road rage and my impatience and at the root of it, my selfishness 
starts to flare up. And you look at that and go, well, Spence, you know, if that was just an isolated incident, you know, just if, it's, if that's the first time it's ever happened, no big deal. It's not the first time. It's, it's, it's not the first time it's ever happened. Uh, I think I'm doing better than I used to, but I, it's but it's one of those things, and I can't look at it and go, "Oh, well, you know, it's not my fault. I'm not responsible. You know what? It's all on him." No, I am responsible for me. And what John is saying, if we continue this pattern of practicing sin with no conviction, no contrition, no repentance. No change of heart or change of mind. We're not being a true Christian. And that impacts me. Maybe it doesn't impact you, but it impacts me, my toes, and my shin. Because he's talking about the practice of sin. And I, and I, and I think, back to my, think back on my life and I think, how many repetitive sins are there that it's the same sin over and over and over? Selfishness, anger, pride, arrogance. That's a practice. And John says, test yourself. If there's patterns and evidence of a practice of sin, that's not from God. So now go to chapter 4. Two more. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 19. Because then he ratchets this up again. Now he gets to my kneecaps. Again, we're going to just jump into the middle of the paragraph. For the sake of time, but notice what he says in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This makes me think about the shooting that happened just this week in Nashville. I wasn't. I realized it wasn't a biological man that did it. You know what a lot of us would look like? Look at that and go, "What kind of a person walks into a school and shoots three children intentionally? Had written manifestos, had planned, had prepared, and it wasn't like I was shooting at an adult and the child just happened to get in the way. The nine-year-old girl was the daughter of the pastor." of the church that sponsors the school. And there's every indication at this moment, might be corrections coming out, but at this moment, there's every indication that that woman went into the school intending to kill that girl. And there's something that flares up in people. Sometimes when I turn on television and I see some of your politicians on TV <laughs> flares up. Sometimes I see individuals that are mistreating their children or berating other people. You go into beds and somebody's being rude and disrespectful with the person behind the counter. They're just there because they got bills to pay. <coughs> they don't need a hard time. Or you go into the restaurant and the whole group of Man-childs are over there giving the waitress a hard time. And you see some of these things. And for me, it's a temptation to say, I can't stand it. I detest that. But, and we, sometimes we may not say it, but sometimes the, the attitude in our heart is, I hate that. <clears throat> but what 
what, he, what he's correcting here, what John is saying is, it's not a matter, we, we don't have the right to say that hate is okay. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now that doesn't mean I have to agree with what they're doing. It doesn't mean I have to join them in what they're doing. There's not a single male or female in this community, regardless of what they've done, that we have justification to hate. Not a single person in this community. Not a single person in the state of Oklahoma. Not a single person that has breath that God has given them, created in the image of God. Do we have the justification to hate? Now, if God came to me and said, Spence, I'll let you hate six people, you just give me a list, I mean, I, I'll give him 30. I mean, I, I've got, I've, I can fill that up, but we've got we to check ourselves. And, and too many times, too many times, here's what we'll do. We will come and we'll look at it and go, well, I don't hate them. But whether we describe it as hate or whether it's just the behavior and the attitude and the emotion of hate, it's the same thing. I get it. This is why it's at my kneecaps, because... I don't like it. Well, she's like, God would give me that eraser. And I could just erase that portion out of it and say, God, I'll keep the stuff about Jesus. Jesus died for me. I'll keep the cool stuff about heaven. But I just didn't take this out of the Bible. John says, no. This is what the Christian life looks like. It's your love for one another. Then the last one. Chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5 and verse 2. And now we're right here in the belly shots. Kidney shots. Verse 2. By this we know that we love. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. I notice he doesn't say and or. No, he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And then that phrase, and obey his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And you think, alright Spence, so what do you mean the commandments? Give me, give, me, give me the list of the commandments that I have to keep, and that way, that's the ones I'll keep, and that way I can just check a box. It's all of this. This is the commandment of God. This is in its entirety. And what does he say? He says the way that we demonstrate our love for God is obeying His commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. No, John, they are burdensome. Do you not see that spot over there in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 where it says, I shall not, I shall not bear fault witness against my neighbor? That means I'm not supposed to lie. That is a burden. No, it's not. No, John, it is a burden because, you know, the first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. Well, I kind of like me as a God. should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. should not make for yourself an idol. should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All of those things that we start to think, well, I don't want to do that. And then we start to think they're a burden. Or we come to church and we're like, we don't want to come to church. All the preacher ever does is tell us what we are, what we shouldn't be doing, makes us feel bad, and tells us how bad we are. Well, if he's telling you what the Word of God says, and your life does not line up with the Word of God, then it's not the Word of God's fault. 
And if you're in a position where the Word of God is burdensome, the Bible would say that's conviction. So he says, when we love God and we keep His commandments, His commandments are not burdensome. You know how freeing it is for me to not have to worry when I look at the calendar what I'm going to do on Sunday? (laughs) You know how freeing that is? 52 Sundays out of the year, and I don't have to wonder, well, do I go to the movies? Do I go to the park? Do I go grocery shopping? Mm -hmm. Do I go to Bass Pro Shop? Do I go to the lake? Do I go out of town? Do I mow the yard? How freeing it is just to say, I already know what I'm doing on Sunday morning. I already know what I'm going to be doing on Wednesday evening. I just know. And that's like a burden lifted. Some of you are like, well, that's just sarcastic. Maybe that's the way God intended it. You align yourself to the things of God and therefore you put those things that are temptations and distractions and things that try to keep you away from God, you put those away and now you're no longer conflicted trying to figure out how you're going to juggle two things at the same time. It's not a burden. But he says, the language, we keep His commandments. Now, now, before we end, look at verse 4. Because there's a promise. There's a promise and there is a... If you do this, this will be the result. If I stop eating, I will lose weight. Verse 4. For everyone who is born born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what is he saying? He is saying if we submit ourselves to God's commandments, if we submit ourselves to the Word of God, to the will of God, and we align ourselves based upon the Word of God, then what do we do? We overcome the world. That means all of the distractions, all of the temptations, all of the yuckiness and the messiness of this world, we're not being in bondage to that. And we're not pushed down by that. We are overcomers. (coughs) We'll have victory in this life. Not because of who we are but because of whose we are. Now that's huge. Because that means that I don't get up in the morning thinking, well, I, I need to try to make this a win. Or we don't get up in the morning trying to think, well, you know, if I think I can just survive this day, I can get up in the morning and say, I have victory. And I don't have victory in Spence. I have victory in Jesus. I don't have victory in my last name. I don't have victory in my money. I don't have victory in my possessions. I don't have victory in my address. I have victory in Jesus. How do you do that? How do you live that out? You've got to follow His commandments. You've got to love God. You've got to do all these things. And so John is saying, you Gnostics out there, that you think you're going to find victory in your own knowledge. You think you're going to find victory in your own self. You're only going to find victory in one place, and that is in Christ. So he gives us these tests, and he says... So now grade yourself. Look at your life. Look at what John says. And see how you get, see how you score. See how you measure up. And then tomorrow, you come home, you think to yourself, good day, checked all my boxes, I'm good. We'll sit down, look at first John and say, Am I good? Or am I depending on my own knowledge and my own abilities and my own opinions? We've got to be careful. Because the Gnostic philosophy is still very present 
and still very real today. The world is always trying to say, you know what is best for you. And John is saying, what is best for you is for you to follow God. Questions? Pushbacks? Clarifications? Theological ruminations? So I'm not going to ask you what you scored on your test. So what we'd have to do in Greek class is you didn't, you didn't have to own it. You didn't have to say, I got a 30. You didn't have to say, I got a 50. You knew there was always those in this class. They always sit on the front row down there close to the professor. And they always got the 90s. And so you always knew who got the best grades. So I'm not asking you to tell anybody what grade you got. Just pass all your papers down to the end. The professor will come by and collect them. So maybe it's today, maybe it's tonight, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe whatever time it is. You can sit down and you can look at First John and say, okay, time for me to test myself. Am I living a faithful Christian life? Not because of what you think and not because of how you evaluate yourself, but based upon God's Word.